Let's turn now to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for there is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, who is the man who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Let's turn also in our book of forms and prayers to Lord's Days uh, 36 and 37. What is God's will for us in the third commandment? That we neither blaspheme nor misuse use the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor share in such horrible, horrible sins by being silent bystanders, in summary, we must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe, so that we may properly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in everything we do and say. Is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing really such serious sin that God is angry also with those who do not do all they can to help prevent and forbid it? Yes, indeed. No sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. But may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? Yes, when the government demands it, or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. May we also swear by saints or other created things? No. A legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth 
and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first table of the law, uh, which is the first four commandments, uh, spell out specifically uh, how we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our, well, not as our neighbor and our, as ourself, that pertains to the, the second table of the law. The point that we must see is that even as evident by this summary, all four commandments of the first table of the law are very closely related. Uh, we can distinguish them from one another, but we really can't separate them. They really go together. I think that should be clear when we consider uh, the relationship between the first and second commandment. The first commandment concerns who we are to worship. We're to worship God alone. And the second commandment pertains to how we are to worship him. But these things are so closely related that uh, God, who is spirit, whom we are to worship, uh, cannot be worshipped by men's hands or by uh, by human devices. And so whenever we would uh, presume or pretend to worship the true God, but we resort to images in order to do so, we are already corrupting um, God in our own minds and in our own our actions and thus dishonoring him. But we can also see a, a close connection then between the first and the second and also the, the third uh, commandment. If the second commandment pertains to how we are to worship God, as that relates to the what of worship, in other words, what we are to do, we are also to understand that the worship of God is concerned with how we do it with respect to our inner attitude. You see, it's proper to uh, worship God correctly in terms of what is done in a worship service. It's proper to say correct words while our hearts are far from God. And then though outwardly we may be very correct in terms of what we're doing, actually we're failing to worship God in spirit and truth. We're not honoring and glorifying his name if we are not revering him from our hearts. And in fact, our words and our worship is then empty and vain. And we are taking God's name in vain, even with proper forms and words. And that relates then to the third commandment that requires us to use God's holy name only with reverence and awe. That's really just a literal quote from uh, Lord's Day 36's uh, summary of the meaning of the third commandment, as evident in, in answer 99. In summary, we must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe. Reverence and awe is the first most basic response of a, of a true knowledge of God. It is the, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. We read Psalm 34. We could uh, back up to the, the previous Psalm and we read in verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord and let all the inhabitants of the world Stand in awe of him. It's a summons to people of all nations to fear the Lord and to stand in awe of him. That is the first proper response to God's revelation. 
In verse 18 of uh, Psalm 33, we read, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. The fear of the Lord is a basic, most fundamental description of what it means to believe in the Lord, to revere him and honor him for who he will, for who he is. And that includes uh, trusting in him. We did read in Psalm uh, 34 this exhortation, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. Young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. To fear the Lord is to revere him. And to revere him is to revere his name. Because the name of the Lord, it's not simply a reference to certain titles by which he reveals himself. But the name of the Lord is a designation for who God is, even all that he is. In Malachi 1 verse 14, we read, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name shall be feared among the nations. That is, who he is, is to be feared among all peoples. Use God's holy name only with reverence and awe. And we want to... Uh, begin our consideration of this by focusing on the matter of our worship. Honor God's name in all your worship. Reverence and awe are necessary to properly call upon God, right? That's the, the language of our catechism. We are to use his name only with reverence and awe that we may properly, and then it lists three things, and among them is call upon God. That's language for prayer. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Psalm 50, uh, Psalm 50, we, we read, Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And so we are to pray with reverence and awe. And that's true of our private prayers. That's true of our family prayers as well as our corporate prayers in public worship. We're to use God's name with reverence and awe. Children are not too young to learn to call upon the name of the Lord. And sometimes we need to remind them that there is a difference between saying prayers as if simply mouthing words and actually remembering that they're speaking to God in prayer. They are calling upon him. And our children are to be taught to call upon God as their father in heaven, as one who is near to them, as one who hears their prayers, as one who is merciful and kind. We have such references in this, this Psalm 34 uh, to God to encourage such Trust in him, such faith in him. Oh, taste and see uh, that the Lord is good, we read in verse 8. Or verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. He is a God who hears the call of his people, the cry of his people. The righteous cry out, verse 17 says, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have broken hearts. We want to teach our children to uh, believe that God is gracious and kind and near to them and 
hears their prayers as they cry to him, but they too must learn to do so with reverence. Verse 11 says, come you children. Again, that doesn't, that's not restricted to little children, uh, but it certainly applies to them. Where it says, come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That is a true reverence and honor of God's name. And yes, that pertains to how uh, we are to learn to live before him, to keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit, to depart from evil and to do good. But it's a summons to this basic response to God of one of reverence and awe and trust. It's also good to learn proper forms of address. I think it's become more popular in, uh, in uh, evangelical Christian circles, perhaps even in Reformed circles, that ch- children are taught to pray, Dear Jesus. In fact, I hear adults using this language in prayer as kind of a customary expression by which they invoke the Lord, Dear Jesus. And I'm hesitant to condemn forms of address that are, are spoken in reverence and faith. But it's it's fair to ask the question, isn't it? Is such language ever found in Scripture? Are we taught to address the Lord in such language? No, we're, we're certainly taught to invoke the name of Christ in prayer, to pray to the Lord. In fact, even that reference, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord there in Romans uh, 10, in context, appears to be calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a proper form of address? If they're going to call directly upon the Lord Jesus, to call upon him as Lord Jesus. But yet, most properly, we teach our children to pray to their Father who is in heaven. Yes, it is appropriate at times to address our prayers directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, but most typically, most commonly, the prayers of Scripture and the way our Lord taught us to pray is to call upon God as our Father. And it's proper to learn forms of address that are reverent, to call upon Him as our merciful Heavenly Father, or our Almighty God and Father, or our gracious Father. There are many such forms of address that we're taught in Scripture that we can be confident are pleasing to God and truly revere and honor Him because they are forms of address which He Himself teaches us. And part of praying with reverence and awe is to use proper titles, the proper language with which to address our God. Our words affect our hearts. You know, that's one great reason why uh, scriptural prayers so often begin with language that uh, extols God, that confesses the truth of who He is and of His greatness. And that is a way of intentionally honoring God in our prayer, but it's also a way in which we ourselves are reminded of the one to whom we pray. And our hearts are affected properly by reflecting upon God's greatness and holiness and just, and it is proper and helpful to learn to address God in such ways, not to impress others, 
Not as if this is somehow some highfalutin prayer language that we take pride in. No, but to address God in such a way as to honor Him and to affect our own hearts with feelings of reverence from the scriptural language whereby we learn to pray. So words affect our hearts and words should also uh, reflect what is in our hearts. Let our prayers express heart reverence for God. Let's make the effort to grow in uh, our ability to pray in a way that honors God and glorifies Him. Let's even make work at avoiding some foibles that so many of us are are inclined to in our prayers. And again, I know it's dangerous and I, I hesitate to make critical remarks of prayers because the last thing I want to do is discourage people from praying or being afraid to pray in a, some public setting of a Bible study because they're afraid they're not going to, to get it right. I'll be so bold as to say such things because I believe it's for the honor of God and I believe it is for the help of God's people to learn to avoid vain repetitions in prayer. Even the repetitions of the very names of God. Don't sprinkle your prayers with Father and God and Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord. I say that's to help you because if we fall into that habit, and it's these are habits that we can all fall into, other people are going to start noticing and they're going to start counting. They're not going to be edified. Now, that's, of course, true with respect to public prayers in the presence of others. But we should also learn to honor God in the way we use his name in prayer, not just as filler, but as the language of faith in which we address him. And that includes avoiding vain repetitions in our prayers. Let us magnify the Lord. Let us magnify the Lord together. That's the summons that we hear in verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And that also is a description of, of uh, worship, upon, of calling upon God together. In fact, uh, the first use of this language in Scripture seems to uh, describe corporate worship. It was in the days of Enosh that we reread. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that this is the beginning of prayer but it seems to be the beginning of a more formalized corporate prayer. People calling upon the name of the Lord. And such corporate worship is to be marked by reverence. Let us have grace, the writer to the Hebrew says, whereby we may worship God with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Joyful reverence should especially set the tone for public worship. You know that worship is, is is described as a sacrifice. Now, in the Old Covenant, that meant literal sacrifices were brought uh, to the tabernacle or the temple that were worshipped. But that language of sacrifice is used of the fruit of our lips, offering the sacrifice of praise. Or how about offering the sacrifice of broken and contrite hearts? The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. God is honored when we come before him with a realization of our sin. And we seek to be affected by that. And we confess our sins. 
and we endeavor to feel the evils of sin, to glorify God for his holiness and his justice and his grace. That's part of the sacrifice of public worship. That's why the corporate worship of God's people has always involved the confession of sin together on the Lord's Day. It's not simply a formality. It's a way in which we want to honor the holy name of God and trust in his mercy to receive us sinners for the Lord's sake. Reverence should especially set the tone for public worship. In Psalm 89, we read that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of his saints, to be held in reverence by all those who are about him. And again, again, this reminds us that the aim of worship is God-centered. It is not to please ourselves. It's not even to edify ourselves. First of all, it is to honor God. We hear that so so often, and even in the many ways in which we're summoned to worship in Scripture. We heard it this evening. Give to the Lord the glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. God is honored and he is to be revered, especially in the gathering of his people. And God is not honored by the neglect of public worship. Some of you may have uh, heard or read different articles on, on this, uh, this, uh, Subject of many churches, many evangelical churches canceling Sunday worship services, uh, next Sunday because of Christmas. Really? And we ought to be saddened by the very thought of so-called Christian churches even considering doing something like this. In a way, it exposes the shallowness if not the outright apostasy of churches in our day, where they actually would elevate uh, family traditions and cultural observances above the worship and honor of God. And in the name of commemorating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, if they even really think that that's what's involved at all, they place opening presents together as a family on the Lord's Day morning, above gathering for public worship to extol and magnify God? It's outrageous. And the sad thing is that there are churches who will do this and don't even know how outrageous it is. And they probably would be offended if it were pointed out to them because they've become so accustomed to a man-centered view of worship that they don't even consider God's summons to worship him on his day as something that trumps every other consideration. Sadly, few care to even ask or consider what really honors the Christ. You know that in the Old Testament, God placed his name upon the tabernacle. That's how it's repeatedly referred to. That's how the, the temple is described, as the place where God would put his name. And that is the place to which uh, Israel would gather for worship. Because that is the place where God's honor especially is to be displayed and to be revered and respected. 
Now we know that the, the, the centralized worship of the temple was abolished at the coming of Christ. That doesn't mean the principle is abolished. Christians gather in the name of the Lord. That's descriptive of public worship. That's where God is most honored by His people. In the gathering of the saints, though there may be two or three gathered in His name, that's where He is. That's where He makes His presence known. And if we take God's call to honor His name with reverence and awe, that means giving priority to the corporate worship of God in the assembly of His people. Honor His name in all your worship, personal, family, corporate. Secondly, honor God's name in all your common speech. We need to remember that it's the mark of God's enemies that they take His name in vain. You know what I'm referring to, that passage in in Psalm 139? Where the psalmist says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. The third commandment is one commandment to which God affixes a very dire threat. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. No sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. And there's an instance of that in Leviticus 5 or Leviticus 24. Blasphemy was a capital offense in the Old Testament judicial law. And there is such a thing as pure hatred for those who show their hatred for God. In any case, we should see such sins as hateful. We should avoid being desensitized to taking God's name in vain. Never use God's holy name as a mere expression. It is common today, isn't it? And it's common among those who think that they're Christians. And I I choose my words deliberately on this point. It is common for those who think they are Christians to use expressions like, Oh my God. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Lord. And what they're really saying when they use such language is this. I am not a Christian. I do not fear God. I do not pray to him with reverence and faith. Because if they feared God and they knew him truly, they would choke on such words spoken simply as an expression to make a point. God's enemies take his name in vain. And if I'm speaking to someone here who on the job and on the workplace uses a different language that includes blasphemous talk of God's name, in the name of God I say repent and recognize that you have not yet begun to fear him and to know him truly. God's enemies take his name in vain. Our words show our hearts. Uh, The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if men and women habitually take the name of God on their lips without thought, without reverence, without care, are we to imagine that these same people know what it's like to come before God with reverence and awe and to call upon Him and to worship Him and seek His honor and glory? doesn't happen. God's enemies take His name in vain. 
Avoid all forms of profanity. Recognize minced oaths for what they are. I actually Googled this. I know it's a common term, but I, I Googled it, Googled it to, to see what kind of definition is found publicly. It's really quite fascinating to find all the different ways in which, in the English language, forms of oath-taking and curses and references to the names of God have been modified and edited and mangled in order to come up with common expressions that so many people use. Look at the list. You might be surprised. You might be shocked and perhaps embarrassed to find some of your favorite expressions and discover that actually they're forms of cursing. You know, the term bloody, bloody this, bloody that, that's a shortened form of by our lady. Really, it's a form of cursing or oath-taking in the name of Mary, supposedly. Of course, there are more familiar ones. Gosh and golly, geez, jeepers, creepers. You can go on and on and on. And such expressions, and I'm not saying them to teach them to your children or with irreverence, but to make a point that these are so many forms in which people, unthinkingly, sadly, are using forms of oaths that involve a mangled form of the name of God. And again, there are very many of them. And uh, maybe it would be useful to ask yourself what you mean. I remember as a kid, there were a few Dutch expressions that my cousins would use. And I found myself repeating them until I discovered that in English it meant God damn it. And I didn't know that. At the very best, such expressions are idle words for which we must give an account. And once we become aware of the background and the meaning of such expressions, then we should go to work at trying to remove them from our vocabulary and breaking bad habits. Hopefully the awareness will help. Certainly prayer will help. Certainly the Holy Spirit will help us if we want to avoid such expressions that, in fact, are dishonoring uh, to the Lord. Somebody might say, well, what am I supposed to say then when I hurt myself on the job? If I can't say, how about ouch? You can say it loud, you can say it many times, or maybe you can find another alternative. But beware of using language that maybe even unknowingly is a form of profanity. At best, idle words. Profanity is really disrespect for anything sacred. And that includes unsacred oaths, all unnecessary swearing. Don't say, I swear. Jesus taught very clearly, it doesn't matter what follows, you're swearing by the name of God. Any kind of legitimate swearing is swearing by the name of God. If it's done seriously with intention, it could be a godly thing. But if it's thoughtless, and it's simply a way to punctuate uh, a statement, then it's unnecessary. And indirectly, it will, could involve taking the Lord's name in vain. That's what Jesus pointed out when people uh, swore by the temple. Well, they swear by the temple. They're swearing by the God who dwells in the temple. Whatever they use, indirectly, they're swearing by the name of God. Let your yes be yes, your no by no, unless swearing is necessary as required by a magistrate, or in most solemn instances, 
where the cause of God and truth requires it, then you do it solemnly. Then you appeal to the name of God, knowing that you are uh, calling upon the searcher of hearts who punishes those who use his name in vain and who lie in his name. In effect, someone is saying, I'll be damned if this or that. What a horrible thing to say. How many people are damned for using such language? Don't swear unnecessarily. Don't throw around words like hell or damn. I've heard professing Christians do this. Does it make them feel big, bold, tough, forceful? No, what it really says is that they really don't take hell seriously. What it really says is that they are not thinking about the solemn reality of damnation. Because if these things live as solemn realities in their minds and hearts, they're not going to throw around these words to make a point, to be tough. That's profane language. That's using words that refer to dread realities in a way that takes away the solemnity of what they signify. Profanity is disrespect for anything sacred. Now I realize, brothers and sisters, that this point has all been negative and as I prepared this sermon, I remember that my my second point was honor God's name in all your common speech, and I've just spoken of ways in which we dishonor him. But we ought not to miss the positive calling of the third command, that we do indeed honor God, that we honor him by our confession of the truth. That's how our catechism also describes what it is to use his name with reverence and awe, by confessing the truth, by speaking it. And that applies not only to worship. Actually, the, the scripture reference here is to Matthew 10, where Jesus says, He who confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father in heaven. Those who publicly identify themselves as Christians and followers of the Lord Jesus are those who dare to speak his truth in this world that is hostile to the truth. They honor their Lord, and he will honor them and acknowledge them for revering his name publicly. Stand up for God's honor when others profane it. Speak truth when others deny it. Love the truth when others hate it. And live according to the truth when everybody's living by lies. That's the calling of our lives. We're to honor God's name in all our common speech. We're to honor God's name in all that we do. Our catechism gathers uh, these uh, ways in a, up in a very comprehensive manner when it says, and praise him in everything we do and say. First Peter 3, verse 15 is kind of the classic passage about how Christians are to be ready to bear witness and testimony in this world, even in the, in, in the case of uh, suffering the consequences for it. But you remember how it begins. It says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. In other words, it's from a, the inner conviction of God's holiness and sanctity that we're to be ready to give an answer to those who ask the reason of the hope that is in us. Now, that should also imply that the fact that we hope in the Lord should be evident by our conduct. But it's with reverence to God that we should bear testimony to the truth and to do so with meekness and fear. You know that the most harm is done to the name of God by religious people who profess his name but who are profane. I read this story in uh, First Samuel about 
Hophni and Phineas. And uh, I'm not going to expound it. And uh, I know it's not even all that explicit in terms of uh, instance of blasphemy or taking the Lord's name in vain. But but what struck me of about this passage is just how horrible, how harmful the conduct of these priests were was Israel. They led the people of God to abhor the sacrifices of the Lord. They taught people a disgust for what was central to the worship of God. His provisions whereby his grace and forgiveness is made known through sacrifice. And by their self-indulgence and greed, feeding themselves from those sacrifices, contrary to the law, people despise these sacrifices. And you combine that with their immorality. And in that light, we hear the word of the Lord to Eli, who admonished them rather lamely and who didn't restrain them or remove them as he should have in zeal for the honor of God. And so Eli and generations to come would suffer the consequences of their failure to honor the Lord. We're given that explanation in verse 30, where it says, Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Eli and his sons despise the Lord. They fail to honor him in what is most crucial and central to his name and worship. One of the most severe indictments that God uh, brings through the Apostle Paul to the Romans was the fact that they cause the name of God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So it's a most terrible thing to dishonor God in the name of religion. May God deliver us from that. None of us can give ourselves a pass on this third command. You know, there's a very real sense in which our very closeness to God poses a danger. And we sin, not not intentionally, not with hearts of rebellion against the Lord, but so often carelessly, due to a lack of intention and a lack of attention. Right? How often do we sing psalms with our minds totally disengaged with the words we're singing? How often are we guilty of prayerless prayers? where the correct words are spoken or heard and we're, we're not paying attention. Or the word of God is read, preached, and we're not receiving it with reverence, faith. Often, how we need that sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us of our many ways in which we fail to honor the name of our Lord. But let our lives then honor the name of God, our Savior. You know, there's a great missionary concern to this command. In Malachi uh, chapter 1, verse 11, we read, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And uh, our, our great and privileged calling is to be instruments in promoting the honor of God. We've been saved with a holy calling, as Peter says, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, 
that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's seek to rise to that calling of showing forth God's praise. Amen.